Are you waiting for a last note to be played? Did it kind of leave us there? That's a good place, isn't it? Let's talk to him about that. God, the truth is, we live life kind of hanging in the air, waiting for the next thing. And Barb has so beautifully, accompanied by Pastor Mark and the team, joined together their instruments and their voices in a beautiful harmony that calls us to recognize that the harmony of our lives finds its tune when we align ourselves with you. And that is most accomplished at the cross, where we come face to face with the reality of ourselves and our need for a Savior, our need for a Lord, a sovereign, a master to lead us in our lives. But God, because you made us, whether we're two or 20 or 100, you know that there's this natural part of us that says, but I don't want to need anybody else's help. I want to do it myself. So this morning, every one of us in this room has another opportunity to face reality. Have we found ourselves, when we insist on doing it ourselves, all too often in the dead-end alleys of wrong choices, unanticipated, unfortunate outcomes of what we thought at the time were good decisions? And do we again now, right now, in these next moments, have an opportunity to invite you the God who created the universe and the God who has given to each one of us life and breath invite you to be Lord, sovereign, king in our lives. I invite you to invite God to sovereign over whatever is going on in your life right now. Family issues, financial issues, health issues, uncertain future, anything. Invite him to be sovereign over it all. And God, we ask you please to touch us, each one of us, right at the point of what you know to be our greatest need today. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm ready for a fresh encounter with God this morning. How about you? I don't want the next 30 minutes or so to just be jibber-jabber. I'd like to have a fresh encounter with God. And children, as much as we'd love to invite you to stay with us, there's some wonderful adults who've been preparing for you. And so how about if we just give a shout-out for all of those adults who've been preparing for our kids while our kids go. Yeah. Thank you, adults. If you've ever spent time with children, you know that's a special gift, right? To be able to receive other people's children and love them and teach them. Hey, can I show you our new theme verse card for this year? And thank you, Gene Groff, for helping us again. Isn't that a great picture? Now, would you say it with me, please? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and he shall direct your paths. 
we're only a couple months into the new year, but how many of you have already found that to be true in your life? You've had to make some decision to trust him, and you found him to be trustworthy. By the end of the year, we'll all be able to raise our hands, I have no doubt. I'm fresh back from doing one of the things I love to do most in the world, and that is get on an airplane and go someplace far away and immerse myself in the world of missions. And I've just come back from Alaska. You may know that coming back from Anchorage, you have two choices. You can dog sled, or you can take the all-night flight that leaves about 11.15 at night in Anchorage. And uh, you, you, of course, have these magnificent seats where you lay out in a lounge and you get a good night's sleep. It really feels more like a casket <laughs> and you're like a sardine so I didn't sleep much so if I doze off somebody come in to jar me awake here but I had a great week about 185 missionaries and their children from all over the coldest places in the world Alaska the Yukon Territory the Northwest Territories and even up in the Arctic Circle area were all together for a week of conference and they'd invited me to come for a second time was there a year ago and to open God's word to them several times during the week and then spend all the rest of the time listening one at a time two or three at a time sometimes crying with them about the heaviness of life praying with them having the opportunity to offer some counsel once in a while uh, there are a few of them who live in Anchorage but all the rest of them live out in what they call the bush villages that are between oh 50 or 60 people and maybe 300 or 350 people in size and that's it and most all of them are the what they would say the only white people in their villages you see even though that's Alaska the United States and the northern part of Canada those people do not consider themselves first uh, Americans and Canadians they refer to themselves as first nations peoples and so they know the tribes uh, from which uh, they have been they have come and they deeply respect the heritage that they've received men uh, to survive in that part of the world you need to be able to hunt and fish and trap and skin and eat all of that which you have caught and provide for your family you got to be able to chop wood like serious because that's how you're going to heat your house in, in the winter and the winter lasts a little longer than it does here uh, one of the guys had been out just last week visiting a village he'd never been to uh, they had to take a little float plane with wheels because it landed on the frozen ice that has got to be six or eight feet thick of ice. And he was there and he told me he was 70 degrees below zero last week in that place. 70 below zero. I said, I is there any human beings that live there? Oh, yes. And they love it there. Really? <laughs> they need a missionary really seriously. <laughs> You can imagine the things that I heard this week. That is lived out every day, where your flesh can freeze in seconds. And if you haven't planned well for the winter, you may not make it through. I heard how God was sustaining dear people who are there for only one reason. They would much rather, in some ways, be living where it's like here. But they're there because of the undeniable call of God in their lives, and they've grown to love the people in those villages. Uh, one family in particular has kids who are now graduating from the homeschooling that they've done, getting ready to go to college, and they're saying, my kids don't want to leave home and go to foreign America. They would like to live here all the rest of their lives, and if you've ever been uh, overseas for any length of time, you understand what that is. 
We've been on a journey these last few days talking about the power of prayer. And we had prepared a 30-day prayer guide for you some weeks ago that will lead you right up to Holy Week. There's still some more out there if you hadn't gotten it. Today is, uh, let's see, Sunday, March 15. And today I put in here to read Acts chapter 1 to 3 that talks about persecution. And we wrote this. Pray for God's strength for millions of Christians who will be persecuted and some killed today. Please pick one up if you haven't and be joining us in prayer because prayer works. Do you agree with that? Prayer is powerful. I had the privilege of staying at the conference with the home, in the home of the director and his wife that leads all that mission work. And uh, the first morning, the director and I were getting our things and got in his pickup truck, of course. He'd had it all plugged in, you know, to make sure that it was warm enough to start. And his wife wasn't with him. And, and, and I said, may I ask where Ruth is? She woke up this morning with a head-splitting migraine. Oh, I'm so sorry. Does that happen often? No, maybe once a year or so. Does it last long? Oh, yes. Sometimes days. How do you break it? We just wait. She rests. She sleeps. We're quiet. By now, we're driving down the road, and I said, Barry, let's pray. Uh, let's pray that God will do a miracle. Ruth has been waiting for months for these four days to be together with these missionary women who've been coming in. So we began to pray. And we got pretty intense in our praying. God, we're asking you to, to reach from your throne room in heaven as busy as you are holding the whole universe together and keeping track of 7.3 billion people to one lady in Anchorage, Alaska today. In fact, God, may I be so bold as to say the conference starts at 9 o'clock. Could you have her there by 9? Amen. And he looked at me, and we're driving, and I looked at the dashboard clock. It was 8.11. And I kept praying, so did he. Guess who walked in the door at 2 minutes to 9? And I said to her, could you help me? Could you tell me? How did it break? She said, I was laying in my bed praying, God, please, you know how much I'd love to be at the conference and be with these dear folks. And I began to feel my head feeling normal. It was dissipating. And I rolled over and I looked at the clock and she said, it was about 8.15, I think 8.14. She said, I, I think I can still make it. I can get up and get a shower and get cleaned up and go. I said, Ruth, I looked at the clock at 8.11. And we had asked God to please do it now. That's why we're studying prayer. We all need, we all need the certainty that God hears and answers prayer and the experiences of God's direct involvement in our lives so we have the stories to tell to our children and our grandchildren that God is alive and well and loves his people and knows our needs and responds. Amen? That's why I love digging into God's Word and looking at the stories of people who believed that. There are two times in the Bible where the prayer was so powerful and the need so great that God actually let a fireball fall from heaven and burn up the sacrifice on the altar. Do you remember them? One was the top of Mount Carmel. Remember where Elijah was there and the prophets of Baal? The other is what we're going to look at this morning. So if you brought your copy of God's Word, let's look at the dedication of that first great temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, 6, and 7. 
you may remember that one of the things that God did in response to Solomon's prayer was he then made a statement Then most of us have not read Solomon's prayer but all of us know the statement that God made if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land do you see my friends that God is saying I'm extending to you an invitation take prayer seriously recognize my outrageous love for you and my readiness my willingness may I even suggest my excitement about stepping into your personal life situations if my people it tells us in 2nd Chronicles chapter 2 verse 1 so Solomon gave orders to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself verse 5 the temple I'm going to build Solomon says will be great because our God is greater than all other gods but who is able to build a temple for him since the heavens even the highest heavens cannot contain him don't you love that this temple was one of the great wonders of that era around the whole world cost millions of dollars thousands of people that helped to build it and its purpose you'll remember was a place of encounter with the living God and its magnificent splendor as Solomon says because there is no God like him he deserves the absolute best and so it tells us there chapter 3 verse 1 so Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David Do you know where Mount Moriah is well it's covered in a sense by a city here's what it looks like modern day the city is Jerusalem uh, the tip of Mount Moriah, the place to which Abraham took Isaac, Genesis chapter 22, to sacrifice him, is under the dome, the golden dome there. And the Temple Mount is built around that. Has anyone ever had a chance to be in the Temple Mount? Uh, pardon me, in the golden dome? I have. I was privileged to go in there once. No matter which door you enter, uh, the room, if we were to complete this circle around, would be about this size. And any door in which you come in, you'll go in, oh, several feet, 30, 40, 50 feet, and you'll come to a railing. And the railing goes all the way around because the floor has been entirely cut out inside the railing. Just a great big hole. Why? Because there's the tip of Mount Moriah sticking up through the hole. You can see... The, the huge rocks, if you will, right there. It is the place to which David came. You see, I have there in your notes a little bit of a history for you, if you like to study the, the history of that place. And he came there repentant because he had taken a census of the soldiers when God had said, don't do that, just trust me when you go to battle. You see, there was a very specific place for it to be built because... 4,000 years ago, God was pointing to that place with Abraham. So I want to invite you to step in with me into this story 3,000 years ago when this great temple was completed and dedicated and this remarkable prayer was lifted up. It tells me in the fifth chapter, do you see it there? Verse 2, so Solomon summoned to Jerusalem, this is after the temple is completed, the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, and the chief of the Israelite families. 
it's time to come together because the temple is complete I put in your notes there for you the great temple of Jehovah was a temple of worship outside the temple in the courtyard was the altar of sacrifice the place of repentance inside the holy place was the golden candelabras that when lit of course symbolized the very presence of God among his people and the table of showbread which every seven days had brand new fresh bread placed on it which symbolized the daily dependence of God's people upon God and his provision there was the altar of incense just outside the veil the place where you remember Zechariah stood and lit, and, or, lit the incense and, and prayed and where the angel Gabriel appeared to him and then there was the great veil of separation between the holy place and the most holy place that reminded we are a sinful people and we cannot approach God and then the most holy place with the ark of the covenant of the relationship between God and his people and the mercy seat and the place where on the day of atonement the high priest could go once a year to appeal for forgiveness before God on behalf of his people so I have a question in your notes there how do I regard and approach the place of my worship experience this place from the moment of its construction this room has been dedicated to be a place of encounter with the living God any person is welcome here at any time from anywhere in the world uh, you know that when this is not here you can see the cross and behind it on a mural the names of God it's a sacred place I often come in here during the week when you folks aren't here and just sit quietly sometimes put the light on just a little bit that illuminates the names look at the stained glass window and just thank God that he's enabled us to dedicate a place of encounter so how do you approach the place other than like this afternoon this is not a place of entertainment this is not really even a place of frivolity, although we appreciate Pastor Chuck's jokes from time to time, even though we may not understand them. <laughs> this is a place of encounter, and that's what the temple was. You could see it from miles around. And so it's time to dedicate, and Solomon invites the leaders first. Men in the room, may I urge you to see ourselves there. God has called you and me as, as men in our families to be the spiritual and moral leaders of our families, to, to make sure we are drawing our families with us as we walk the journey of life, to make sure we are defending our families against the darkness, and to teach our sons particularly how to do the same, right? Did you grow up in a family where your daddy taught you how to do that? I did. I'd like to link what I see here in the fifth chapter the dedication of the temple the, the coming together with what I gave you two weeks ago the Lord's Prayer you remember that the first line of the Lord's Prayer says our Father as these leaders of Israel gathered they were unique people in the whole world no other nation was a nation that God himself had declared you are my treasured possession my people it says that they came together to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion Verse 5, they brought up the ark and the tent of meeting. You see the capital T and the capital M, that's the tabernacle that was with them as they walked around in the desert for those 40 years. It was portable, and they were bringing it into the temple. It was a reminder, as Pastor Chuck showed us last week, of God's sovereign reign over the past. It was a celebration that God is in heaven and had reached from heaven to his people and had given them things to remind them of the sacredness and the majesty of God 
It says here that as they came to the temple, uh, verse 10, there was nothing in the ark except the tablets of stone that Moses had brought down off the mountain. Verse 12, 13, 120 trumpeters and singers, and there was great celebration and praise as they were rejoicing and praising God because hallowed be thy name is true. And then it says at the end of 13, the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Thy kingdom come. God was doing there as he had done in Exodus chapter 40 when the tabernacle was dedicated, consecrated. What he had done on the top of Mount Sinai, not once but several times when he met with Moses, his presence was there visibly in a cloud to overwhelm the people. God is here. When is the last time it almost took your breath away? A sense of the presence of God. You felt you, you couldn't stand. You needed to get on your knees, perhaps on your face. It was overwhelming. When Ruth walked in that conference room, there was a sense of the presence of God as he'd raised that dear woman up so she could be there. My prayer is that as long as this building stands, whenever you walk in this room, there is a sense of the presence of God. Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark or a dense cloud. I have built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. God's sovereign over the past is symbolized by the ark and the tent of meeting. God's present sovereign over the present is symbol by the cloud of his presence, God sovereign over the future. In the way, in the words of Solomon saying, I built this so you dwell here forever. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then Solomon did something no king, no president, no monarch in the world would ever do. Dressed in his royal robes, perhaps his crown on his head, he had built a little platform and he knelt down on that platform, it tells us. He lifted up his hands, overwhelmed by the privilege of praying to the majesty. And he began to pray. Let's look at what he says. Chapter 6, verse 14. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servant, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. Verse 18, will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. Do you notice that very often the, the prayers that are recorded for us in the Bible begin in this way, an outright adoration of majestic holy God. Why? Because we have a natural tendency to feel led to pray when we have needs, when the load of life is heavy, and so naturally we come running into God's presence saying, God, don't want to be a bother, but here's what I need. Hurry up, and oh, here's what I'd like you to do, and I'd like it done by now. You have any questions, God? Good. See ya. Is that kind of how we pray sometimes? And in all three prayers now that Pastor Chuck and I are bringing to you, it's an entirely different picture. God, you are awesome and majestic. I have no right to speak to you. 
for a holy and a magnificent God. I've jotted down in my notes, right next to each of these, just one word. May I give you one for this one? Majestic. We need to start our praying being overwhelmed by the majesty of God. The 19th verse. Yet, give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. I put next to that bond servant. Do you see that he's referring to himself as a servant? The king is referring to himself as a servant. Do you remember the apostle Paul often referred to himself as a bond servant? And you remember what that is. It was when a slave who had no rights, sometimes not even a name, was, was given or had earned his or her freedom. But the slave said, no, I, I don't want to be free. I want to indenture myself. I would rather stay as a servant, a bond servant, for the rest of my life to my master. And, and they would take the servant, as you remember, and, and bring them to the, the presence of, of, of the judges or the leaders and lay their ears against the, the doorframe and pierce with an awl a hole in the earlobe that would never again heal. A constant reminder, this person has chosen servitude for the rest of their life. That's what Solomon is saying here. I, I, I'm a king, but I'm a servant to you. Please, even though unworthy, hear the prayer of your servant. Verse 20. May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name. May you hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, what's the next word? Forgive. Do you find it interesting the very first thing he asks of God is not wealth or fame or pleasure? Forgive me, God. What does it mean? It means that when we come into the presence of God with prayer, we begin by recognizing his majesty and our sinfulness. And the only way that you and I can come into his presence is because of Jesus. Amen? And what Jesus has accomplished, purchasing our right of entry into his presence. So I've written the word forgive next to that. Verse 22, do you see it there? When a man wrongs his neighbor and is required to take an oath, and he comes and swears the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing down in his own head what he has done and declaring the innocent not guilty. I put the word justice, holy justice, next to that. King Solomon is saying, as we step into the presence of God, we worship him, and we thank him for the privilege of being in his presence, but we recognize he's a holy God, and he must respond to wickedness with justice. It's also, may I suggest to you, an invitation to you and to me that when you have been wronged, when injustice has been done to you, there's a place for you to take that. And it's not the place of revenge. It's into the throne room. God, I give you this person and this situation and the wrong that's been done to me. I ask you justice, your holy justice. It's in your hands. I forgive. I step back from it and leave it with you, huh? And when your people Israel, verse 24, have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you. Do you see that Solomon is recognizing that there is a direct correlation between what happens here and what's going on with God? 
And Solomon is acknowledging that God's people will be defeated in battle. God has no obligation to help us win the battle when we have turned away from you, God. So when that happens, and when they turn back and confess your name, praying and making supplication before you, hear from heaven. Forgive the sin of your people and bring them back to the land. I've written the word reconcile next to that. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, would you agree that there is any division between two people, any broken relationship, God can work in both of their lives for His glory. Do you agree with that? And do you agree that it is so wrong for you and for me to live nursing unforgiveness and knowing full well that there's a relationship that is broken, severed, destroyed, and we've had a part in that? Ignoring that and just going on saying, God, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. Knowing full well there's wounded people that we refuse to recognize that we are the cause of their woundedness. And when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sins, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people, and teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land. Hmm. I put the word restore next to that. It's the next step beyond reconciliation. It's restoration. And when famine or plague comes to the land, or blight or mildew or locusts or grasshoppers, <laughs> when a prayer or a plea is made by any of your people, Israel, each one aware of his afflictions and pains, spreading out his hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive. Do you see the repeated pattern over and over? Forgive is always there. Forgive and deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart, for you alone know the hearts of men so that they will fear you and walk in your ways all the time they live in the land. I've written next to that sanctification. That wonderful privilege that you and I have because of Jesus Christ, because of the Holy Spirit of God within us, in growing in our understanding of Him, our relationship with Him, and becoming more and more like Jesus. As for the foreigner, verse 32, who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this temple, don't turn him away. Hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people. Missions is the very heart of God. That's why I'm so glad for these flags. Wouldn't it be fun if a few years from now, Donnie and I come back to visit you and that wall isn't big enough. There's flags all back there. I was so happy to tell the folks in Alaska, we have the flag of Canada and the flag of the United States. Calvary is a people who has a love for the nations. Have you noticed how often in Scripture, Psalm 113, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, let all the nations know you and fear you, O God purpose of the nation of Israel was to be a people that all the rest of the world could look at and say, so that's what it looks like to be a people of God. Oh my! The purpose of the church is to be a people of God that all the rest of the world can say, oh, so that's what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of your sins. That's what it looks like for husbands and wives to live in this love relationship where they forgive one another as they have been forgiven in Christ. 
That's what it looks like to raise up children who know how to build a God-honoring family. That's what it looks like to do business in God-honoring ways. I get it now. I see it in the lives of these people who call themselves Christians. One of the things that breaks my heart is what I hear from those dear folks up in the Northwest and what I heard from our own Don and Kim Gillespie working among the Chilcolton people in British Columbia. One of the great barriers they need to get over is the damage done by those who called themselves Christians generations ago. Abusive people. Years to overcome the wrongs that have been done. But when God overcomes them and lives are changed, when miracles happen, everything changes. Thank you for being a people who care about the world. Please don't ever let it die. And when your people go to war, verse 34, against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you toward this city you have chosen, hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. May I suggest a, a, a modern post-Easter view of that would be, and when your people, the church, God's people, go to battle against the dark kingdom in the issues in our life journey, when our marriages are under pressure, when our families are trying to be ripped apart by the darkness, when anger and bitterness and unforgiveness wells up inside of us, God, come to the rescue of your people. Empower your people. Protect them by the armor of God. Empower them by your Holy Spirit as they fight against the unseen dark enemy. Amen? And when they sin against you, verse 36, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them, and you give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away, if there they have a change of heart, in that place where they are held captive, and they repent and they plead with you in the land of their captivity, then hear from heaven, hear their prayer, and uphold their cause. May I give you this picture of that? When a person like you or me, a Christian person, finding themselves because of the pressure of life drifting, finding themselves drawn into those darkness things that they used to be in years ago, and now it's weeks, and now it's months, and they haven't been together in a worship service. It's been weeks or months since they've opened God's Word. It feels to them like it's dry as dust. They have no interest in it. They find themselves drawn deeper and deeper into the things of the darkness. What Solomon is saying, in that dark place, when finally, God, they come to their senses and they awaken and they realize, oh my, I'm so far away from where I used to be. God, please don't abandon me in this darkness. God promises he will never abandon you. You remember John chapter 6? Jesus saying, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. I shall lose none of all those that the Father has given me. Amen? So if you or someone you know is on the drift heading that direction, he knows, he sees, he loves you. He's waiting for your call. He's ready to respond. And when Solomon finished praying, chapter 7, verse 1, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the temple because the glory of the Lord filled it. And when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped. Wow! The response of an almighty, holy, majestic God 
to the genuine repentant prayers of his people. And that's why he said later in the 7th chapter, 14th verse, to Solomon, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin. And I will, what is it? Heal their land. So do you see what I wrote for you at the very bottom of your outline? The condition of any society in the world depends not upon the political structure, monarchy, dictatorship, democracy. It depends not upon who that leader is. It depends not upon the economic structure of that society or the educational level of that society or the health care that's available in that society. The true condition of any society depends upon God's people in that society and if they are a praying people. That's what the Bible says. So when a society is imploding, and yet there is in that society millions and millions of people who say, I am one of those called by his name. What should we conclude? Hmm? People who represent God, who stand here in his stead, people who are to build up his kingdom in this world, must be, in an eminent sense, people of prayer. Whatever else they may have, whatever else they may lack, they must be a people of prayer. <laughs> Having everything else but lacking prayer, they will fail. Having prayer and lacking all else, they may yet succeed. Prayer must be the most conspicuous and the most potent factor in the character and conduct of people who undertake the divine commission in life. God's business requires people who are versed in the business of praying. Prayer is the language of a person burdened with a sense of need. Prayer is the language of those who need something, something which they themselves cannot supply, but which God has promised, and so they ask boldly. Not to pray is to declare, there is nothing I need. And to admit, there is doubt that God is relevant at all. Prayerlessness represents an attempt to be independent from God, a self-sufficient disregard of God. Prayerlessness is a declaration made to God that we do not need him. We do not respect him very much, and we have little to no desire to honor him, really. And so, we do not pray. E.M. Bounds. Is it true? If my people. There's not very often in the Bible where God says something that begins with a little word, if. You know what I see there? An invitation. I'm inviting you, my people. I'm laying out before you an opportunity. I, the unlimited God, if my people. It starts with a question, am I one of the my people? I am if I have trusted Jesus Christ to be my Savior and I have been, amen, redeemed and adopted into God's family. If my people who are called by my name, it means what really identifies me 
as I live my life, am I identified by I am a follower of Jesus? Or am I identified by other things? If my people who are called by my name will, oh God, really? Humble themselves? Not will submit under my will humble themselves. Why is that so important? Because pride and God can't work together. In pride, I don't need God's help, do I? I miss my grandchildren, and all four of them have gone through that terrible twos. Did yours? Where they stand up, and with fists clenched and teeth, I can do it myself. <laughs> yeah. Will humble themselves. God, I can't do it myself. I can't do life myself, God. It's way too big. I don't understand it. I humble myself and pray rather than fists clenched and seek my face. God, I want to know you. I want to be close to you. I want to understand. And the closer I get to you, God, the more I am oh, repulsed by the stuff in my life that is not honoring to you, so I want to turn from my wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven. Then will I forgive their sin. And then I will unleash my power and begin to heal their land. Who holds the future of America in their hands? Not the Senate or the Congress. Not from a spiritual and moral condition. God's people hold the future of this nation in their hands. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from your wicked ways. Then will I hear your voice. Then I will forgive your sin, and then I will move among you and heal your land. Is he about ready to unleash his healing power or his judgment? God Almighty, God Almighty, thank you for recording for us the dedication of the temple and Solomon's prayer. God, we are a sinful nation and a sinful people. We long, oh God, to be your people, a holy people, anointed by a holy God, forgiven of our sin, cleansed from our wickedness, restored in relationship with you, empowered by your Holy Spirit, O oh God, to live out a life that is God-honoring in this place, bringing to our nation and our world the help and the hope of Jesus. Why don't you invite him right where you're sitting into a new close intimacy Invite him to draw you into a new, close intimacy with him. Invite him, the God who made you and loves you, to show you what is it in your life that is offensive to him and that is making it so difficult for him to pour out his blessing upon you. And as he shows it to you, oh, my dear friends, release your grip on it and repent 
and invite him to do his cleansing work in you. Oh God, we worship you. We worship you.